now with the virtual world, we're actually able to engage with scientists from different parts of the world and then connect with their networks. There has become sort of broad recognition that we have a responsibility in higher education to provide our PhD students with a broader set of skills and competencies. That can be another way of getting information that you might not know. You're listening to Vitamin PhD, a podcast from Boston University delivering career narratives and know-how to supplement your doctoral studies. Welcome to Vitamin PhD. Today, my co-host Rohan and I are talking about a wide variety of science communication skills and experiences. We are joined by Dr. Derek Turner, Professor of Philosophy at Connecticut College, and Meredith Schmel, a PhD student at Duke University. Before we get started today, we had pizza on the brain and thought we should ask our guests what two types of pizza toppings they would use to describe themselves. And so if I had to go, it would be, this is controversial, but I'm known to be controversial on this. It has to be, it has to be Hawaiian. So I'm, I'm going to be pineapple and ham because a little bit of sweet, a little bit of salt and life just comes together. Oh my gosh, Hawaiian pizza. Hi, I'm Meredith Schmel. I'm a PhD candidate at Duke University going into my fourth year studying neurobiology. And I also do a lot of science communication, outreach, science policy outside of my PhD. So I'm excited to talk about some of that today. And I think because of that variety in what I do outside of the lab, I would say my pizza topping to represent me is bell peppers because there's so many different varieties. It kind of represents all those different activities that I do. And I'll go ahead and pop corn to Jessica. Awesome. I like that. Um, yes. So hello, everyone. But man, if I had to describe myself as a pizza topping, I really, really, really love black olives on pizza. So I think I would do a disservice to myself if I didn't include that. Um, I don't know that that necessarily describes my personality, though, because I don't know how to relate to an olive, but I think they're delicious. Um, and then I also... I have to go with onions. I think that's a good combo. So pizza with black olives and onions. And over to Derek. Thanks for having us um, join the conversation today. So I'm, I'm, I'm a little flummoxed because I'm thinking really hard about pizza toppings. <laughs> but but um, I'm, I'm Derek Turner and I teach um, in the philosophy department at Connecticut College um, up in New London, Connecticut. And I'm also um, currently serving as director of an interdisciplinary center for environmental studies up there. So I do a lot of teaching in environmental studies as well. And, and I'm really interested in philosophy of science, um, philosophy of the historical sciences and the life sciences. So I'm interested in paleontology and evolutionary biology and earth science. And, um, and a lot of my research has focused on philosophical questions about work in those areas of science. Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm, and as I said, I'm really excited to be here today. I've been thinking about pizza toppings. So my own favorite pizza topping, honestly, is also black olives. Um, we've had a lot of, I'm visiting family at the moment and I have a little nephew and I are the only two family members who actually like black olives on our pizza. So we've been lobbying for black olives the whole time. So, okay. so Jessica, you're, <laughs> but I don't, but pizza toppings I identify with, I don't know. Let me um, go out there and say something like 
spinach and gorgonzola or something like, like with like contrasting flavors on one pizza or something where you've got two things that are pretty different but they go together so I, I don't know uh, something about that contrast is sort of appealing I, I like that it I think that speaks to the the Hawaiian flavor you know you have the pineapple and the ham very much so yep <laughs> contrasting yep. flavors and actually be kind of delicious it's true very delicious well to move us off from pizza because I now want that for dinner. Um, <laughs> we are gathered here today to kind of talk about science communication and different ways that communication has shaped career paths and shapes research and communications with people outside of science, others who don't have PhDs. And maybe kind of a good way to kick things off. And I invite you to both like speak to your experiences or advice you might have for others is just how has science communication research communicating with others in the public influenced your career path? Well, I guess maybe I can start because I'm a little bit earlier in my career, um, but I do plan to pursue a career that is sort of at the intersection of science communication and science policy. And I've known that for some time, uh, definitely since I was in my undergraduate years, but I think just participating in all these things, having all these advocacy projects has kind of given me a broader idea of what's out there and what the options are in these career paths. So I think for me, science communication has not only influenced my career path, it will be my career path. Thanks, I'm, I'm so excited to learn more from Meredith about just the kind of work that you're doing um, already, you know, um, an earlier career stage, I'm, I'm obviously much further along in my um, just kind of trajectory academically um, and career-wise, but science communication and outreach actually has had a big impact on my philosophical thinking and research. And, you know, when I, when I first started out, um, for many years, I was doing kind of the very traditional thing of just trying to publish as many technical philosophy of science papers in, in reputable journals as I could, you know, and, you know, my first book uh, had a very small audience. <laughs> it, was a, it was this technical thing, you know, you're trying to get tenure and it was a technical thing on the scientific re uh, realism debate, um, really written for a small audience of other, of other academic philosophers and um and then things changed though around i think it was 2016 i teamed up with a, several friends to launch a blog to do some more public uh, writing about paleontology and related areas of science we were all the four of us were all really really interested in paleontology it's called the extinct blog um that'll be my kind of shameless <laughs> plug it actually changed my research direction by giving me a way of floating some trial balloons so if i had an idea for a for an actual paper or a larger academic project i could do a short you know 800 word piece on the blog and kind of see if anyone found it interesting. <laughs> and sometimes the answer was no. <laughs> but in a couple cases, you know, I, I did I did a short blog essay and it generated some interesting pushback or feedback or discussion and um, that left me thinking, oh, actually there might be a paper idea here. Yeah, that's really interesting. Kind of relatedly, I think being involved in these communication activities has kind of helped me when I do the academic type of writing or academic communication. 
For example, I'm working on a grant right now and I find that my experience doing science writing has really helped with my ability to write a clear grant or to write a clear paper. Um, and I also often get comments when I give talks to my department that I'm sort of explaining things almost as though I'm talking to the public, but people like that because it's not jargony. I'm not assuming knowledge. I'm kind of telling it as though I'm speaking to an outside audience. And so I think definitely having these experiences outside the lab has improved my ability to do those lab-based things as well. I swear this was not plotted, but Jess and I have an ongoing list of questions. And the second one on that was how in when you when you're writing about science, how do you use more inclusive vocabulary? Yeah, I do find it's useful to avoid jargon. I think for me though, what's really more important is explaining things in a way that tells a story, even if you do have to include some jargon. Um, one of the things that I have been doing for the past several years is writing for the Massive Science Consortium. They train people to write these sort of public facing articles. And in their initial training, they have this example that in Star Wars, people are really happy to learn a bunch of jargony words because the story is interesting. And so if the jargon means something and it kind of has this interesting story to go along with it, no one really cares that there's these big new words. But for some reason in science, people kind of shy away from those jargony words. So why is that? And I think one of the reasons is that people don't always shape their science into a story that makes sense. Um, and so I certainly do think about avoiding jargon, but I think there's something to be said too about keeping one or two words in there and teaching people these new words and just kind of explaining around them in an interesting way so that they leave knowing that new vocabulary from the story. Yeah, that's such a great point about narrative and storytelling. You know, uh, philosophical writing is its own strange kind of thing. That's <laughs> it's probably very different in many ways from scientific writing, um, whether sort of technical, you know, writing up um, articles uh, or writing for broader audiences, either one. Um, philosophical writing is its own strange kind of genre with a lot of, of jargon and a pretty high price of admission. All my life, I've really enjoyed reading nature writing. And this kind of gets more to my environmental side a little bit. And I've, for years and years, I thought, wow, it'd be really interesting to try to give it a go and actually try to do some nature writing sometime, which is sort of by design much more accessible. And it was almost by accident after we started this blog for philosophy of paleontology, in a couple of blog essays, I was writing about fossil sites that I'd been to. And, so, and it started to feel like nature writing. <laughs> and, I, and I realized, oh wait, I, could, I can actually do stuff here that's a, a much more like nature writing and it's, really fun and it there won't be any philosophical jargon at least not at first you know and um other people might not um find it annoying and inaccessible in the way that a lot of people react you know to to, to sort of professional philosophical writing yeah i think like kind of both of you said it's a very fine line between communicating what what you want to get across, but also not relying on the more traditional vocabulary that you're kind of accustomed to from doing a PhD in like academic journals and stuff. And I, I do think that there can be 
I don't know, I think there's some danger that can kind of come with that in that there's a lot of times where science is like dumbed down or that phrase dumbing down so that you can access a more accessible audience or a more diverse audience. And I like Meredith, how you were saying that you actually felt or people in your department thought that you were speaking more to a public audience because that's just kind of how you've trained yourself. Um, I was wondering if you could kind of speak a little bit more to like how you got to that point. Um, Cause I think, especially like as PhD students there's so much pressure to come across as like highly technical. And, you know, as Derek was saying use these languages and words that people are familiar with in the field but maybe aren't like <laughs> words that someone not so deep in the field would know. Yeah, that's a great question. I think for me, some of this is just how I naturally explain things. Um, people have told me that I'm a good explainer since I was in elementary school. So I think some of this is just, I tend to be pretty good at thinking about what people know and what they need to know and kind of explaining it in a way that goes in a logical order. Um, but I certainly wasn't born knowing how to give a research talk. So I think some of this also has come from just watching people give talks and kind of being frustrated when I walked away not understanding something. Um, you mentioned kind of the need to impress people by using the right vocabulary, using the right structure of your talk. But I actually find it's more impressive when I walk away from a talk understanding it well, especially if it's outside of my field. So I think trying to model my own talks after that and have people really walk away understanding what I'm doing, even if they're not in my field at all, that has really been what has helped shape my speaking style. But Mary, how, how did you get started with uh, NSTN and all of them? Was there, did you just decide to go for a conference or did someone, did someone kind of loop you into it or something? So I guess to answer this question, I have to go back a little bit further. So the way that I got into science communication and all of this in the first place was that in college, I was very involved in outreach. Um, I was a neuroscience major. I wanted to meet other neuroscience majors. And so I joined this club called the Neuroscience Student Advisory Council. Um, and that group did many things, but one of them was outreach with local schools. And so when I got to grad school, I sort of branched out and said, what else can I do that's similar to in-person outreach, but maybe using some other methods and what else can I learn? And so um, through that, I happened to learn about the National Science Policy Network, and I was just elected to the Public Engagement and Communications Chair. You can find us on our website at scipolnetwork.org. We're also on Twitter at scipolnetwork, lots of other social media platforms. Uh, but basically what we do is we are a network of early career scientists, mostly graduate students, but we have members who are undergrads, high school students, um, and then above grad school, so postdocs, professors. Um, and our goal is to provide the opportunity for scientists to use their expertise in policymaking. And so to do that, we provide training opportunities, we provide networking opportunities, and we have support resources available for you if you are interested in starting a chapter at your institution. Derek, earlier when you were talking a bit about your blog, I think it's so cool that you started it with friends and it was like this collaborative effort, but you mentioned that there are like a lot of challenges kind of associated both with adjusting your own writing style, but just in entering that blog space and communicating your own science in a very unique and kind of different way. Um, 
I was just wondering if you could kind of share a bit about the birth process of that blog um, and whatever challenges you experienced. The origination of it was pretty straightforward. It, it came out of a conversation that a few friends and I had at a conference one year. Uh, the, we were all, we all knew each other through our work in philosophy of paleontology. And that's a pretty small world, you know, it just came up in conversation. What if we started a blog? And then uh, um, a few of us just decided to run with it. And um, the, it's been hard to maintain over, we, we really, we really um, sustained it pretty conscientiously for three or four years. And it had a little trouble kind of, um, partly because of just kind of career issues that have cropped up and, and, and also life issues. I think it was pretty transformative for all of us and a really positive thing. And the, the um, basics of just getting a platform, I think we did it through Squarespace. It's pretty easy um, to, get it, to get it up and running. It's, it's really having a team is essential uh, because not everybody is, can be sort of on, on task all the time. So to be able to kind of share the work was incredibly helpful. Um, and then having a, you know, coming up with a plan for the schedule, you know, for the first year was a bit of a challenge too, but yeah, it was really, it was completely fun and valuable. And I'd really recommend that sort of project to anyone. Um, I will say it was scary. Uh, you know, I, I had never before, you know, I've been doing the academic stuff for a lot of years, but I'd never before published anything that I really, where, where there was much question about who the audience would be, you know, um, like in philosophy of science, we often kind of fantasize that like, oh, maybe someday some scientists will read what I write, but it, it doesn't usually happen that often. It's usually just a few other philosophers um, who pick things up where we, we don't get cited by science or very few philosophers get cited by scientists all that often. And, um, and so, but when you put something out on the internet, it's like all of a sudden, like, Oh wait, who is the audience exactly? It, you know, we were thinking, well, our, our colleagues in philosophy, we wanted to introduce other philosophers who maybe don't even do philosophy of science. Like, Oh, you know, here's what, here's the kind of stuff we do in philosophy of science. It was maybe, maybe scientists. It wasn't, it was a bit of a nail biter for our first six months. We were like, you know, are any paleontologists reading this stuff? Like, could that be? And then, and then we started to get a couple of comments here and there. And it was like, whoa, it's a little bit, um, it was, it was a little weird. You know, I had one interesting experience. Um, I wrote a piece um, that was, it's probably the most, kind of deliberately controversial thing um, I ever wrote and it was called Our Dinosaurs Overrated. And I got <laughs> some, di some dinosaur scientists really didn't like it. But but the invertebrate paleontologists who study, you know, like who study fish, or sorry, no, invertebrate paleontologists who say fish and then invertebrate paleontologists, they thought it was great. <laughs> uh, so I got some positive feedback. It was kind of like a, a, a bit of a divisive thing <laughs> when it comes to like feedback from the scientists. And, and so that was sort of interesting to see. And you, you kind of you learn as you go along a little bit, like which kinds of things will generate which kinds of feedback. But at first it was, it was pretty, um, I mean, it was a little exhilarating to kind of imagine, oh, who might be reading this? But it was also a little bit kind of scary to imagine, how, or to, even to think about how to write something that will land well 
with like completely different audiences you know yeah no I I agree I liked that you said it can be scary to kind of do the public facing outreach or communication because I think that is something that's very true but seldom said <laughs> like we've all said you know kind of aspiring to a career that includes science communication or just kind of developing these habits in an established career I think I think it's just really cool, but I appreciate just hearing again, like, yes, it can be scary. It is scary and that's okay. That's all part of the process and you grow to kind of adapt and, you know, evolve as a person, evolve as a scientist, as a researcher. One thing we learned was that titles matter so much more than in academic writing. In academic writing, it sort of doesn't really make that much difference what you title your technical journal article you know um but um you know if we we started studying the analytics on the blog and kind of seeing which things took off and which things didn't and then my sense is that the, one of the kind of the major difference makers between things that got attention and things that didn't was the title you know um by far the most popular thing we ever published on the on the blog was an essay by another by a Connecticut College student actually called Walt Disney's Dinosaurs and that thing went viral it was a it was a terrific essay uh, and but but it got picked up I think because of the um, because of the title and we had a couple of other things that got a lot of attention I think largely because um, the the title was kind of showing up in certain categories of Google searches and stuff like that. When you start communicating with broader audiences, that kind of thing can matter a lot. I went to a conference that was held by the Union of Concerned Scientists. And one of the exercises was to like title a blog post about any topic that we wanted. And they were just talking about like coming and coming towards that public engagement audience from a science perspective, like you have five words to capture someone for long enough to maybe read the first sentence of your blog post, in which case your first sentence also has to be stellar or else you're going to lose your audience right away. Besides, Meredith, have you had any of the, any funny experiences with titles? Like a title really took off or a title really made your article swim and float up on Google and the search engines of Google? I have definitely had this experience. So one of the first real public facing pieces that I wrote about science was for Scientific American. And it was about a recent study where basically they had taken a classic illusion in psychology and kind of turned it on its head and found a way where it's not always true. Um, and it had to do with what weight you perceive that a material is. So you look at a piece of wood and you think it's going to be light. You look at a piece of metal and you think it's going to be much heavier. Um, and I didn't get to choose the title of this article. It was the editors at Scientific American who chose it for me. And they chose a title that was, which weighs more, a pound of stone or a pound of styrofoam? And of course the answer is they're both a pound. And so all the people who didn't read the article sort of went in all the comment sections on social media and said, well, of course they're both a pound. What kind of silly article is this? Um, but if you click on the article and read it, you realize it's actually kind of a really interesting study. It's just that the headline was kind of clickbaity. So I've definitely had that experience. Um, and I think kind of relatedly, something else that really matters is images. So the cover image that you choose or the image that shows up on social media when someone posts the link, 
that can also really make a huge difference in whether you get clicks or not. So definitely titles and images are really important. There's such a visual component. I think even to writing, if there isn't a good graphical abstract to a paper makes it so much easier to understand and grasp. And that's, that's academically speaking, but if we like a, for a book or a magazine, a good picture cover, I, I guess that's why time, you know, just thinking back to some of the classic covers for time magazine, you see that and you read the article and it sticks with you. It almost gets burned in your brain. Picture and the words all go together. And on another point, how important is it for one to think about the question, who is our audience while writing or while thinking of what you want to put out there? Or should you just do that post or just put it out there and whoever reads it, reads it and we'll see. Personally, for me, I think it's very important. Um, Often, if you do a science communication training, the two things that they'll tell you are know your message and know your audience so that you can tailor that message to the audience. Um, I definitely think it can be useful to kind of just make something and then see what happens with it. Uh, but if you're really trying to make it accessible to a certain group, I find that I personally need to keep the audience in mind as I'm writing or creating whatever it is, because that informs how I set up the background and maybe even what words I use. So I definitely think about audience quite a bit. Uh, the, hard, the hard part for me is, is, especially with more public facing writing is, is getting clear about kind of whom I really do want to write for. You know, uh, in a lot of my writing, I think about students. I think about, okay, if I could write something that, um, that the students I, I'm privileged to work with could find like interesting and engaging and um, that would, then, then I'll consider that a win, you know? Uh, and I think a lot, I approach a lot of writing that way, but for more public facing writing, it's a, it is a little bit challenging to think, okay, who exactly do I want to talk to, you know, through this piece? But, yeah. So kind of linking this back to the, the language question I had, would you consider seeking alternative ways of communicating your science if language was going to pose a barrier with this new kind of audience that you wanted to target? You know, how would you go about that? So I think if language is going to pose a barrier, then maybe that's a good time to consider other types of media. So you could try visual communication, making some kind of infographic. Um, there's even science art, people who are scientists who go and make art for the purpose of communicating a concept. Um, you can do things like videos, podcasts, giving a talk. Um, you definitely don't just have to write things. So if you're interested in science communication, you might look into the Joe's Big Idea Slack. This is a community run through NPR. Uh, there's also one that is art-based called Lifeology. Obviously kind of the current state of the world and the role that science has played through the pandemic and the intense role that science communication and misinformation and the media and policymakers. The list could go on and on. It's definitely a um, challenging political environment, both, both with the pandemic and also with climate change, how you both have kind of used your unique skill sets and experiences, both from the philosophical angle and from the more policy outreach based angle to just exist as a science communicator, as a professor, as a PhD student in this current climate that like used your unique expertise to kind of evolve as a science communicator. 
um, how we've grown through this challenging time. One interesting issue for anyone, you know, who, you know, wants to do some public engagement, uh, sharing, you know, with, with broader audiences, different aspects of scientific, scientific work is, you know, which area of science to focus on. And in, in our case, we kind of, the group that I was working with kind of gravitated towards paleontology, partly because that was just our scholarly interest as philosophers. But we also had in the back of our minds the sense that, you know, um, dinosaur science is a kind of gateway for lots and lots and lots of young folks into just kind of other areas of science. If, you know, for a lot of younger folks, it's kind of the first area of biological science they might learn that much about, you know. And, and so it has this like, this broad appeal to start with. Turns out one thing we, we found is that um, dinosaur science does have this kind of interesting nonpartisan aspect to it. There's actually some social scientific research on book buying patterns on amazon.com and stuff like this that suggests that dinos um, dinosaur science is the one area of science where um, books focusing on that area are about equally popular with liberals and conservatives. <laughs> um, other areas of science are actually a little bit more polarized <laughs> with book buying kind of correlating a little bit with, um, with um, political uh, persuasion, I guess, if you want to put it that way. One interesting thing is to kind of take something like that that's really popular and then like weave in, you know, some environmental stuff. Uh, some maybe some arguments. I was just going to say that's really interesting. Um, and something else that I wanted to bring up is how transferable a lot of these communication techniques are that we've been talking about. So things like telling a story, avoiding jargon, thinking about your audience. These can all be really useful when you're doing more advocacy or policy-based things. For example, um, I recently did some meetings with my legislators, my um, representatives and senators, and we were talking about the importance of funding basic research. And so as a part of that, I kind of had to explain my research to this very non-scientific audience. And so it's just very reminiscent of all these things that we've been talking about earlier. So there's definitely a lot of interplay between these things. And I think kind of with Jurassic Park and you were talking about book authors, maybe some of them are even like children's books. These people who aren't necessarily scientists, they don't have a PhD, they're just good communicators in whatever way, shape or form. Acting as like a middleman to get across these scientific ideas. So if the weatherman comes on TV and is like, oh, it's the hottest week on record, someone who has an inherent distrust of scientists might be like, oh yeah, like something's going on. This is definitely unlike other summers I've experienced. Whereas if a climate scientist comes out and you know is saying, hottest year on record, all of these things, then they might be like, oh, well, I had snow all winter long. Like, what are you talking about? They're a little bit more of a neutral presence that maybe can reach audiences that tend to steer away from science communication generally. Should we kind of encourage this type of communication? Should we encourage this sense of the middleman? Or should we try to kind of deter and remove that so that there's less opportunity for kind of misinformation as it go down goes down the pole. Yeah, I think it's hard. I think 
it certainly is useful to have people who are trained in how to communicate because oftentimes scientists aren't. And so, you know, it can be very useful to have those people whose entire job is to take information and distill it down and make it accessible to people. And so to me, the solution is really to have both groups of people doing this as much as they can. Yeah, I totally agree. And I, I would just add that there are folks working in other field, fields like history of science, uh, science and technology studies, philosophy of science, um, who, you know, who actually have a pretty interesting, often a bit of an outsider perspective on, on scientific theory and practice, how the scientific process works. Um, there aren't a lot of, there aren't that many professional incentives for, for academics working in these areas to do much of that work. Talking with Meredith, I'm like, in, like increasingly aware of like how little training and background I've had in my career with respect to talking to people or writing, you know, writing for certain kinds of, a lot of that gets done by people who are just, who are neither scientists nor <laughs> philosophers nor historians nor, you know, social scientists um, who are just really good at writing or <laughs> something like that. Yeah, the lack of training and lack of incentives really resonated with me. Because if you think about what are the incentives for a traditional research professor to get tenure, it's research, teaching, and service. And usually the service is not service to the community, it's service to the institution. And so there's really very little, if any, incentive for people to actually do this communication. And so very few people do. I, I, I agree so totally. I do think uh, some of the incentives are changing. Not I'd like to see them change more. Um, and here I can speak a little bit more from the perspective of just being at a different career stage. I can say that, you know, at some institutions like Connecticut College, the, the institutions are moving more in the direction of recognizing public outreach and writing for broader audiences you know, um, blog writing, other kinds of other kinds of public and creative um, work are now are counting more <laughs> in tenure promotion reviews and um, higher hiring decisions. I think all of this was so it was implicit. And now it is actually being made explicit that no, this is something you have to do. This is part of your training. How in both of your experience, do you kind of measure successful communication? <laughs> I think it depends on the medium and what the exact project was and who the audience was. So for example, if you wrote a blog post, maybe your measure of success is how many read-throughs it got or how long people spent on the page. If you're doing something more policy-based, like talking to legislators, then maybe your measures of success would be something more like whether the bill got passed or at least whether that specific legislator supported that bill. You know, maybe it didn't get passed, but usually there's a public record of kind of who supported what. So were you successful in getting them to support what you wanted them to support? Um, if you're doing something more outreach based, you could do kind of like an informal survey at the end. So for example, when I have run workshops and classes in the past, we did like a post survey to say, what did you learn? What did you enjoy the most? So I think it really just depends on each situation, but there's definitely ways that you can think of to evaluate progress in each of them. 
it's really tempting to, to focus a lot on what you might think of as like the more conventional measures of success with online content. You know, how many hits does, does it some item get, you know? Um, and I, I think, you know, culturally, like so much of the emphasis is on like, you know, how, um, you know, how much it's all about attention, right? How much attention is something getting? And it's really easy to, to sort of think of that as the primary um, measure of success. I enjoy kind of thinking about it that way as a, that helps me to myself kind of frame the challenge a little bit when, when communicating something is, does this work, you know, as a, aesthetically, like as an essay or, or, or something like that. And, you know, that can come apart pretty easily from like the amount of attention it gets. So, so, um, so I might advocate for, for approaching this with a bit of an aesthetic sensibility as well. I'm going to close out like we've closed out our previous episodes with what is your two-part advice for someone starting out in communicating science? Yeah, it's like that infamous elevator pitch. <laughs> well, I guess I could share some insights. So I would say if you're interested in getting started with communication, really any type of communication, I would say just start. It sounds kind of silly, but a lot of people feel like they need some kind of permission from some sort of authority. I don't know who that would be. So that would be my best advice is really just get started in whatever small way you can just get started and make yourself the main character of the story. Uh, one additional tip I could offer that's sort of an easy one based on my experience is um, it's not something that you have to do on your own. You know, a shared project can can make um, well, can make the process you know more enjoyable, and um, you know you can learn from each other as you go. It's just a wonderful thing to work on with colleagues and friends. Right, so that's really great. Thank you for tuning into this week's episode of Vitamin PhD. Thanks also to our producer Sasha Goldman and editor Farisoon for putting together this episode. You can get the latest episodes of BU Vitamin PhD on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can learn more about our team, stay connected, and share feedback with us over Twitter at BU Vitamin PhD. Once again, that's at BU Vitamin PhD, or by emailing us at gradeb at bu.edu. Once again, that's gradeb at bu.edu. Thank you, stay safe, and tune in for more Vitamin PhD next time.